Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, medical oncologist from Georgetown University. Thanks for tuning into this important episode where we will discuss climate change, specifically as it relates to lung cancer. I'm joined today by two special guests, both vocal ISLC members who have taken a passionate interest in understanding more about the climate crisis and how it directly impacts the lives of our patients with lung cancer. Our first guest today is Dr. Joan Schiller. Dr. Schiller is internationally recognized for her work in lung cancer clinical research. She has served as the chair of the Thoracic Oncology Committee of ECOG, Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, editor for the Journal of Clinical Oncology, board member for the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, and principal investigator for many landmark trials in lung cancer, including ECOG 1594. Dr. Schiller has chaired departments and mentored many through her academic positions at the University of Wisconsin, University of Texas Southwestern, and at the Inova Shar Cancer Institute. She currently serves on the NCI Board of Scientific Counselors on ASCO's guideline panel and as a mentor for ASCO's leadership development program. In addition to her academic work, Dr. Schiller is the founder and president of Free to Breathe, a national advocacy organization aimed at raising awareness and funding for lung cancer, which has recently merged with the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. Joan, thank you for taking time today. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's great to be here. And we're also lucky to be joined by Dr. Eric Berniker. Dr. Berniker is an associate professor of clinical oncology at the Weill Cornell Medical College and the Diane Harkins Modisette Professor of Medical Oncology at Houston Methodist Hospital, where he's also the Director of Medical Thoracic Oncology. He serves as the Chairman of the Houston Methodist Hospital Cancer Committee and is also the Chairman of the American Society of Clinical Oncology's Climate Change Task Force. He is ASCO's representative to the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. Eric, glad to have you with us. Great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, there's a lot we want to talk about today, but I want to start by understanding your own individual interests. Eric, there are so many directions that we're all pulled in, both of you so accomplished and so busy. Why did you decide to commit so much of your own time to this cause? So I think there are a number of things that, that led to that. Obviously, it goes without saying, it's such a huge issue for not just of those of us in, in healthcare, but just for the entire world, clearly. I, I th- it's not like I've given up my day job at the bedside. But I think that it, I got here through a number of routes. I mean, obviously, in the lung cancer space, been very interested in how tobacco, not just medically and scientifically, causes such public health crises, but in terms of the intersection of misinformation and, I would say, the conflict between policy and business. There are so many factors that go into tobacco policy. And from there, it was an easy step to really look at a broader picture. And, and similarly with, with climate change, how misinformation and lack of political will was going to have significant downsides for human health and flourishing. Yeah, there has been a very unfortunate politicization of what really should be a scientific and health issue. Joan, what about you? What motivated you to focus your time and resources on climate change? Well, I think I first became aware of the problem. We have a cabin in the mountains of Southwest Colorado. You know, it's really beautiful. It's remote, really beautiful. But recently, over the past five years or so, many of the trees are dying and they're dying because they're infected with a spruce beetle. 
And the reason they're infected with the spruce beetle is because they have gotten much more stressed lately because of heat and drought. And I also had grandkids right around that time. And it occurred to me, they're not going to see these beautiful mountains and beautiful forests like I did. And so I just, so that's what woke me up. And then I realized it's not only just pretty, but climate change has effects on health as well. So that's what got me into it. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I think that on this podcast, we have listeners from really all walks of life. So let, let's start with some of the big questions then. What is climate change? What does it have to do with lung cancer? Joan? Well, climate change is defined as the presence of substances in the atmosphere that are harmful to the health of humans and other living beings or cause damage to the climate or environment. And these substances are largely due to the burning of fossil fuels. The science is very clear about that. The burning of fossil fuels generates particulate matter, PM2.5, as well as other greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. And these substances do have a lot to do with lung cancer. In fact, air pollution is labeled as a carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC. So it's a carcinogen, something that causes cancer. So think about this. The IARC, which is an international nonpartisan scientific panel, has examined the data and concluded that air pollution causes cancer. And the cancer that it causes is lung cancer. In fact, air pollution contributes to about 14% of lung cancer deaths worldwide, even in never smoker. One of the substances in air pollution caused by the burning of fossil fuels is something called particulate matter or PM2.5. PM2.5 is 2.5 microns in size, so very small. It can get absorbed through the alveoli and generates oxidative stress and low-grade and long-term inflammation. Other substances in air pollution are mutagens and can cause gene mutations in DNA addicts and so forth. So this really is a lung cancer problem, as well as a whole health problem. This low-grade oxidative stress also causes heart problems, as well as stresses other organs of the body. And so, Joan, we've seen very clearly in the past decade a rise in lung cancer in never smokers. And that's something that we try to, to preach awareness of, to, to really uh, make sure people understand that, that this can affect anyone with lungs. Are you saying that potentially pollution and climate change may play a role in that? Certainly, potentially. I mean, there have been epidemiological studies which have been done, which have looked at populations in high pollution areas versus low pollution areas. And never smokers are more likely to get lung cancer in the high pollution areas than in the low pollution areas. Wow. Eric, how big is this problem today? You know, can you just give me a sense of the scope? Sure. I mean, I, I think that the last time the carbon concentration in the atmosphere was this high was millions of years ago before there were stable human societies, before there were humans. And, and water levels, uh, sea level was much higher than now. At least the media, I think, has finally caught on. This topic is covered finally fairly extensively, maybe not as well as it needs to be, but so far already, you see that both poles, the Arctic and the Antarctic, are having unprecedented high temperatures. 
we see weather events now. This is not something that's going to affect our great grandkids. The Gulf Coast gets pummeled every summer with tropical storms and hurricanes. The Pacific Northwest last summer had a heat bomb with unprecedented high temperatures. And so I think that the issue is that we're seeing it now, and it's really kind of a somewhat of a runaway train. And we've got these opportunities now to intervene and to hopefully avert the worst of it. But this is not something that can be kicked down the road further unless there's going to be an acceptance of huge amounts of human suffering, political instability, and mass migration. Stephen, can I just add one thing to that? Yeah. So this is a major problem that causes people to die. So it is an estimated that indoor and outdoor air pollution caused more than eight and a half million deaths in 2018. Outdoor air pollution was estimated to cause over 4 million deaths, the majority occurring in low and middle income countries. The remainder was caused by indoor air pollution. So big problem. Yeah. Let's talk about climate change and lung cancer specifically, sort of step-by-step. You both have mentioned causation. And we know lung cancer is a complex disease and it can be related to tobacco use, to radon, to asbestos, and a lot of unknown factors. But as you've both mentioned, we know there's a relationship between air pollution and lung cancer. This has been shown. Eric, can you go into more specifics here? Can you talk about how air pollution and particulate matter are linked to the development of lung cancer? Sure. You know, I think that the mechanisms continue to be worked out, there's no question that the assumption is that the absorption of these particulate particles into the lung causes local inflammation and probably DNA damage. There's been some recent work that suggests that in addition, where these particles lodge, they can prevent immune cells from getting in and and hopefully taking care of dysplastic cells early. So I I think there's multi-causal issues here with how air pollution clearly adversely affects the development of lung cancer. It's also important to uh, note that patients, not only is, is air pollution an issue in terms of triggering lung cancer, but once you have lung cancer, patients who live in areas with high pollution have clearly worse outcomes. And so it also gets to the unfair disparity issue is in that populations are not uniformly exposed to air pollution. And so you get to issues like climate justice and and kind of where the worst polluters are and the need to protect vulnerable populations. So there's a a whole confluence of not just biological factors, but, but again, kind of social determinants of health and disparities that are important to note. There are other parts of the world where not all air pollution is outdoors. So there are places where there's indoor pollution from burning of coal or biomass for cooking. And so there are different social factors that lead to exposures, but there's no question that in those communities, indoor air pollution is a major cause of illness as well. Yeah, I guess when you think of all the the downstream effects, the implications of, of climate change really are quite vast, and it really seems to impact almost every aspect of care. You know, Joan, is this widely accepted? And you know, if it is, why aren't we talking about this more? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it is now widely accepted. You know, 10 years ago, people were still arguing as to whether or not it was happening. I think most now agree that it is happening and it is caused by humans. 
And I think that the reason the medical community didn't focus more on the impacts of air pollution and lung cancer was because they were so laser focused on the fact that the majority of lung cancers are caused by tobacco smoke. And smoking is such a preventable cause of lung cancer. And it was such an uphill battle combating the big tobacco companies that I think the medical community and epidemiologists were pretty much focused all their energies on that. And so the population health scientists and epidemiologists never really took their heads out of the sand, so to speak, to see if there's anything else that can cause lung cancer until recently because it's only recently that the effects of air pollution and climate change are starting to become so obvious and so clearly will impact the future of our society that has finally come to general public attention. And the causation is is certainly concerning for all of us. We all breathe the same air, but let's talk about some of the specific patients that are diagnosed with lung cancer. Joan, what are some of the ways in which climate change impacts the treatment of lung cancer? Well, starting at the beginning, so to speak, first, as people stay at home, the pandemics caused by climate change, such as COVID-19, result in fewer screenings for cancer as people shelter in place. In fact, Dr. Ned Sharpless estimated that we'll see 10,000 more advanced colon and breast cancer patients in the coming years due to the drop-off in screening and the fact that during the pandemic, we were seeing fewer patients with very early cancer cases while they were still curable. So that's one thing. Secondly, these extreme weather events caused by climate change, as Eric mentioned, can make it extremely difficult for patients to receive the treatment they need. Patients have problems getting to their treatment center, accessing their healthcare providers, who are often sheltering in place as well. They have problems accessing their treatment and medications, and if need be, at transferring their care to other oncology health providers outside of their affected areas. It also has impact on outcomes. So one recent study looked at over 1,900 patients who were undergoing definitive thoracic radiation therapy for stage three lung cancer when hurricanes hit their neighborhoods. And this study compared the outcomes of those patients with the outcomes of close to 130,000 patients also undergoing radiation therapy, but non-hurricane weather. It took patients in the hurricane-hit areas much longer to complete their radiation treatment than those who were not in the hurricane areas, like 70 versus 46 days. And this, of course, was due to things like disruption of service, inability to get to the treatment facility, blackouts, etc., The survival of the patients in the hurricane-hit areas was 11 to 19% lower in those areas hit by hurricanes compared to those that were not. And if the hurricane disaster lasted a long time, like 27 days, survival was 27% lower. And as Eric also mentioned, air pollution and PM2.5 have a major impact on the prognosis and treatment of lung cancer patients. Lung cancer patients who are exposed to high levels of air pollution, like Eric said, have a higher mortality rate than those who are not. And air pollution increases the risk of getting COVID-19 infections and death from COVID-19. And I'll let Eric talk about his personal experience with Hurricane Harvey in Houston, because that was something. Eric, other ways that the climate crisis can negatively impact lung cancer management? Yeah, I think that there are a wide variety of, of concerns. Jen's already mentioned the concern of lung cancer screening really falling off. And let's face it, we're not doing a great job with lung cancer screening. 
in general, but certainly that remains a concern. I think also at the end of the day, the IASLC is a global organization and, and many low and middle income countries that already are a bit thin in terms of their ability to have robust public health are really going to be in countries that feel and bear the brunt of climate change more so than kind of a lot of the Western higher income countries. And so I think that while it clearly will affect care everywhere, I think that there are certain places where screening, therapy, access to chemotherapeutics, immunotherapy drugs, radiation, all will be compromised or at least made much more challenging with weather events, drought, and fires. And so that's the new normal, unfortunately, but we need to keep that in mind. There are the things as well. There's good data that as the climate changes, food will be less nutritious. And then as that becomes an issue, so that's not just with crop failure, just actually th there's data showing that, that certain vegetables and, and wheat will be less nutritious, and hence you're going to have the health consequences, poor wound healing or other downstream issues from, from nutrition as, as a growing concern from the effects of climate change. So it really is quite vast, the impact of climate change. You know, it, it can be something as individual as not being able to leave your home during a hurricane or, or during wildfires, but you know, it can affect sort of bigger scope and supply chain, something we're very familiar with now. If we think back to late 2017, when Hurricane Maria sort of had a, a big, devastating uh, impact on, on operations in Puerto Rico, that happens to be where a lot of our saline is produced. And there was a national saline shortage, which certainly impacts our ability to administer certain medications. And so this really does affect everything. We think it's supply chain now in the setting of the pandemic. And Joan, you mentioned something a little earlier in passing. I wonder if you could talk a little more about the link between climate change and the current COVID pandemic. Well, what we do know is that with climate change, we are going to be seeing more and more pandemic as the earth gets warmer because the geographical areas that these vectors live in gets larger. We don't know for sure that the COVID-19 pandemic was caused by this, but there's certainly suggestive data to suggest that. COVID-19 is transmitted by bats, and apparently the geographical area of bats in Southeast Asia has gotten bigger. Also, heat results in many of these vectors, insect vectors, getting more active and having longer reproductive seasons. So we're going to see more problems in the United States with things like Legionnaire's disease. We're going to see, start to see more malaria and diseases like that. So pandemics and diseases are certainly one thing that will be aggravated by climate change. Yeah. I mean, it's it affects so many aspects of our life. Rising temperatures, we know, also just influence how we interact socially. And you know, great conflicts are associated with sort of higher temperatures. The French Revolution happened when it was very, very hot outside. And as we turn more towards conflict, I think that we, we stretch our resources in different directions, maybe not towards health and the care of their patients. Eric, you mentioned something earlier that was really fascinating to me, the impact of particulate matter and air pollution on our immune system. And we now are very aware of the importance of our immune system, not only in the development and cause of cancer, but in the treatment of cancer with immunotherapy. Do you think that air pollution could have some impact on the efficacy of immune therapies? 
So that's a great question. And, and certainly it needs to be studied. I mean, we've all seen people have dramatic responses to immunotherapy. I think we all feel grateful that we practice at a time when these drugs are becoming available. But we've all seen people do very badly. And, and I think it needs to be looked at in terms of not just the immune microenvironment in terms of certain biological factors, but how exogenous factors like pollution might affect immune cells kind of migrating to the, the tumor. I think that is something that definitely needs to be studied at greater detail. Wow. Now, both of you have spent a lot of time in Texas where we have seen extreme weather events that have had major consequences to civil infrastructure and certainly healthcare delivery. Eric, do you feel like this is becoming more frequent in the past decade or are we just more aware of things? Do you have personal experiences from the recent hurricanes you can share with us? I do. You know, it's been, I've had two fairly horrible experiences. One was with Tropical Storm Allison, which dropped at that time an unprecedented amount of water on Houston. And unfortunately, let's just say that the idea of resiliency in the face of storms was not much of an issue at that time, certainly wasn't on the radar, but much of the Texas Medical Center lost power, mainly because the backup generators were in the basement. That was maybe not the best place to position it in a flood zone. And so, of course, I was on call that weekend and rounding in dark hospitals <laughs> where there are no elevators, air conditioning, and where all of the food and medicine were in the basement and were wiped out. So we were very fortunate. We were able to get all of the patients out but carrying patients down 20 flights of stairs to find ambulances that can transfer them to functioning hospitals was difficult. And then, of course, the radiation therapy facilities were damaged for months to repair. Basic science studies were decimated. A lot of the lab rats that were used in studies and cell lines were also destroyed. So those things are not just a, a one-off. I mean, we know what Hurricane Sandy did in in New York. And then recently, Harvey was also a disaster. Nurses couldn't get in. Nurses couldn't leave. House staff had to stay in the hospital. Patients had their schedule, whether it was radiation or chemo, completely upended. And then last summer, when Louisiana was a hurricane punching bag, we got a lot of weather refugees who had to come into Houston for their care and, and get to establish with new physicians. So it is getting more common, and there's no question that hospital systems need to really keep a very close eye on having disaster planning. And it has to do with everything from staffing to food to supplies so that the care of patients is interrupted as, as limited as possible, I would say. I cannot imagine sort of trying to deliver care in that setting and, and what it must be like to have your own care interrupted. That sounds really heartbreaking, really devastating. But let's, you know, I'm not too familiar with events up here. Joan, does climate change affect all of us equally, you know, from a geography standpoint? You know, we're a little far from Texas here, or from a disparity standpoint. You know, Joan, who are the people that are most impacted by climate change? Without a doubt, it's the poor and the underserved populations that are the most impacted because they're the ones who live closest to highways and power plants and so forth. They have a low-income communities and communities of color are already disproportionately affected by cancer and have a cancer mortality higher than the rest of the population. And they are more affected. For example, one study from VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, showed that babies born within five miles of downtown Richmond face up to a 20-year difference in life expectancy. 
And that's due to the fact that they are closer to these power plants, highways. They also have less healthy food, more air pollution, less medical care, et cetera. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. I would say another study, for example, closer to home here in D.C., looked at inequities in health impacts attributable to PM2.5. And they found that the highest all-cause mortality rates attributable to PM2.5 were more than four times higher in neighborhoods that had a higher percentage of Blacks compared to neighborhoods with a lower percentage of Blacks. And those neighborhoods had, as you would imagine, lower education and employment rates, more residents living in poverty, a lower median household income, and 10 fewer years of life expectancy. So yeah, it is the poor and the underserved. Those are huge huge numbers you're giving. Joan, Eric, do you you agree with that? I mean, is climate change really widening disparities, not just in the US, but globally? Yes, I think there's little question of that. I think that the expectations are that as famine and drought get much worse, we'll see tremendous geopolitical instability, increasing climate migrants that will also pose a huge problem for just dealing with their suffering and then figuring out how, again, geopolitically to kind of balance so many different issues. I do think that this is also going to be a profoundly expensive issue. You'll hear sometimes people say, well, doing X, Y, or Z to mitigate climate change is really expensive. And I think the important point is that not doing much about climate change is what is going to be expensive, not just in terms of expenses for infrastructure and a variety of other issues, but, but in terms of human flourishing and, and health. So I think that the expense is really in terms of not doing more or being more aggressive in coming up with systemic solutions to alleviate some of this problem. This is clearly a, a major and growing concern top of all of our lists, but this is not like a new conversation, right? This is something we've been talking about for the past decade. And as you mentioned, Eric, we are seeing more press about this lately, but I think you'll agree it's been a little hard to have people sort of keep this top of mind, you know, even in the face of growing and undeniable evidence that things are getting much worse. You've seen climate change evolve into a climate crisis, but there's just been insufficient action on this. And, and I guess I'm going to ask you both, you know, why? To to quote Margaret Atwood, ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. So why are we collectively choosing to ignore climate change? Joan, I'll start with you. Well, I think it is largely in part due to the fact that climate change is becoming a political problem. Just like so many of the other aspects of our daily lives, it's become politicized, just like COVID-19 vaccinations, for example. I mean, I think it's no longer about health. It's about politics and the economy. But as Eric said, regardless of whether climate change is good, bad, or indifferent to our economy, it's coming nonetheless, and it will be more expensive, and we need to figure out now how to make it the least painful. Mm. Plus, one other thing I wanted to say, climate change is the perfect problem in the sense that it is so easy to ignore. You know, it's invisible. It's slow. Its dire consequences are far off in the future. It has more than one cause. It's going to require more than one solution. It's global. 
And fixing it is going to be difficult and painful. It it requires changes now to avoid uncertain losses in the future. And that's another reason why I think it's been easy to ignore. Eric, how about you? Why aren't we talking about climate change more? So I think there are a lot of reasons. First of all, I think humans are very wired for dealing with immediate threats, and we're really bad at dealing with kind of more protracted or perceived down the road threats. I think that was certainly part of it. I honestly think some of it was also a failure of media to bring a lot of this. I mean, climate scientists have been screaming from the rooftops for decades, and I think that It's easy to blame, quote, misinformation, but there was a lot of misinformation out there. And I think all of that was truly problematic. I think one of the problems now is that it it can be so overwhelming. I think now it's the opposite. People are almost frozen in panic or despair. And, And of course, that's, while on some level maybe understandable, but that is not a helpful position to be in or a feeling. And so we have to be much more proactive and really work for solutions that will make the world better in so many ways. So it's a tightrope, right? We don't want people to succumb to despair or misery, but we do want people involved and engaged and aware of of how this is going to affect human health in now and in the future. Yeah, I think that's I think that's it exactly. You know, part of it is that perceived lack of immediacy. You know, it's much easier to grab our attention than it is to hold our attention, especially in, in sort of the, an era where our attention spans are rather short. But I think a big part of that is that scope. And when we sort of start to understand how big this problem is, how it affects every aspect of our life now in the future and for generations to come, yeah, we, we feel sort of helpless. And if we feel helpless against a problem, we'd rather just not look at it. So let's turn more towards practical solutions here. Are we helpless? Eric, what can we do at an individual level to help this? So a couple of things. Clearly, there are lifestyle things we all can do, but I also understand there are a lot of climate activists who will point out that at the end of the day, we really need to focus on policy on on a much more macro level. That being said, certainly within the oncology space, there's a number of things that, that we can do. One is obviously in our rare spare time, we can educate and and advocate with lawmakers and and really try to increase awareness of how this is going to affect health. I think that on a functional level, we really need to look at, can we lower the amount of radiation treatments that people need so there's less schlepping back and forth to the radiation center? How, How can we stretch immunotherapy infusions out even more? meaning we need to lower the carbon footprint of our medical interventions. We obviously need to prove that that's not diminishing efficacy, but we need to be somewhat innovative in trying to limit transmit travel back and forth to the hospital. We need to continue to embrace telehealth and make sure that it's understood by payers, that it's not just for the convenience of patients, but that by using telehealth, We can cut down on people driving into the hospital or their doctor's office. So I think that there are things like that. And then certainly there's a range of stuff that on a macro level, like I said, that that we shouldn't despair. We have a lot of the answers. We need to just be pretty clear at doing things like capping well so methane's not spewing out 
into the atmosphere. And certainly we need to really help our legislators promote, you know, renewable and, and green energy. So all of that is doable. We're not going to invent something that magically sucks the carbon out of the atmosphere and solves our problem immediately. But it's not like we need to invent science fiction answers to a lot of these problems. So certainly we need to talk about this more and to really look at every aspect of our care from a global climate change perspective. Joan, other things we should be doing to combat climate change? Yeah. So climate change is due to the burning of fossil fuels. So what we could be doing is reducing amount of fossil fuels we're burning. And that would be, you know, by using electric vehicles, carpooling, public transportation, telecommuting, like Eric said, reducing air travel, and electrifying everything, cars, our homes. The other thing that we as physicians, I think in particular, can do is talk to our healthcare systems. Healthcare is responsible for about 8% of all greenhouse gas emissions. They say that if the health sector globally were a country, it would be the fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. And that includes everything from supply chain, making drugs and other products, transporting them, food for patients and staff, waste and how to dispose of it, et cetera. So that's a major impact that I think that we could have. Hospitals need to cut waste. They need to recycle more, decrease the use of single-use plastic, more environmentally sustainable food. They need to start advocating for more clean energy sources for electricity. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, we need to, to look inward here. Eric, let's think about this maybe from a system standpoint. You know, What kinds of things can hospitals do to help? I think that for a large part, hospitals kind of get a pass on all these things. Maybe they shouldn't. You know, we hear about sustainable systems. We hear about companies going carbon neutral. I don't think I hear much of that from hospitals. Uh, am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. I, I do think that, as Jen said, uh, hospitals have a pretty high carbon footprint. And I think that the boards of hospitals need to be made aware of this in the same way that boards of other corporations are dealing with a lot of these sustainability issues. I think that Part of our role as, as healthcare providers is to point out that it's a little ironic that on one hand, hospital systems are involved in the care of patients and of hopefully healing and, and mitigating disease. And on the other hand, we can't be spewing carbon into the atmosphere. So I think that there's a number of things that need to be done. Hospitals need to, when they build new buildings, need to make sure they're as energy efficient as possible. And they certainly need to really try as best they can to embrace green energy sources. I think that, as Joe mentioned, food is a, a huge issue, not just in terms of waste, but hospitals really need to kind of look at locally sourced food mm -hmm. and the waste specifically out of operating rooms is, is a huge issue. And, and so there are surgeons who are leading that charge, but robotic surgery tends to have a higher carbon footprint. That doesn't mean we should toss robotic surgery away, but there needs to be a much more careful look at, for example, anesthesia and some of the gases that are used really have a, a pretty high carbon footprint. So again, are all of these things doable? Sure. But part of our role needs to be to bring this to the attention of the board and hospital administrators, because this is an, an urgent area where they really need to be involved and to help us make big changes. Yeah. I think that that's probably long overdue. 
Joan, what about affecting change at the level of cancer centers specifically? I think cancer centers often don't think about being involved in disaster events, and they need to start thinking about that, that their hospital might be part of a disaster event. And what that will mean is that they have to be prepared to organize patient transfers, make sure their patients have emergency kits, including oxygens, IVs, and other supplies, that they have their medical records and radiology records. They have make sure that they have backup systems and redundancies. And another point that Eric mentioned earlier was their staff. How are their staff going to get to the hospitals? How are they going to access patients' medical records? What about childcare for the staff? It's all these little itty-bitty things that can build up to a huge disaster. Now, one thing, Joan, you know that a lot of uh, cancer centers are designated and funded by the NCI. And to sort of receive that designation and the funding, we are judged and sort of evaluated on different points, such as diversity, trial enrollment, research, and so forth. Is environmental impact part of that, or, or could it be? It sure hasn't been, but it sure should be. I mean, everybody, anyone who has ever put in a CCSG grant, a cancer center support grant from the NCI knows that one of the things you have to address in there is how does your institution handle disparities and how do you try to make sure that people of color and disadvantaged people get to your facility and get on clinical trials. We should have something very similar to that. Cancer centers should be required to have a sustainability plan. We're Otherwise, we're never going to think about it. We're never going to go there. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree with that. I'd like to also add, I, I think that the other thing that cancer centers can do is use their clout to work with pharma on greening clinical trials, right? So, and which means not that you don't have monitoring visits, but anything that can be done virtually should be done virtually. And, and I think that Again, while individual cancer centers can do this, this is almost like this needs to become a really nationwide impetus. And, and along those lines, as Joe mentioned, I mean, there's even been calls for when the IRB at your institution is reviewing a trial or when the cooperative groups are, are opening trials, there needs to be a discussion of the impact of the trial on climate and, and are things being done to try to, to mitigate that as best as possible without you know subverting the efficacy. But I think that leaving that off the table in terms of part of it, I, I think it needs to be part of the mission of the leading cancer centers and of pharma and IRBs and everyone involved in this research effort to not sacrifice novel therapeutics, but to look at ways to make sure that we're doing everything possible to limit climate impact. The other part of that would be to not have to have patients make so many in-person visits, patients on clinical trials, but instead allow more telehealth and contacting uh, remotely, because going back and forth is a big hassle for so many patients and, of course, has that big impact on the climate. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought of that as, as a matter of convenience, as a matter of cost, as a matter of reducing exposures. But yeah, I mean, clearly has also a big impact on, on climate as well. So all of the above, we certainly have the resources to do that now. Eric, has the pandemic made things better or worse with regard to climate? That's a complicated question. I, I would say it probably made it worse. Clearly, 
early on in the pandemic, when everyone was <laughs> at home, we all saw the carbon emissions drop. And that's, of course, rebounded with a vengeance. I think human nature being what it is, people want to hop on planes, they want to travel. And if anything, I think there's almost a type of global science fatigue that's creeped out of the lot of the, the COVID restrictions and the different explanations. I think people, I almost think they're tuning out a lot of not just COVID stuff, but, but climate. And of course, geopolitical conflicts really exacerbate things. So as inflation is an issue, as the war between Ukraine and, and Russia is leading to all sorts of upheavals in the energy market, it's hard to talk about clean solutions when people are paying a lot of money at the pump, which again, of course, is a disparity, right? It affects lower income Americans much more. And starting to talk about going to alternative energy sources versus drilling more is difficult. Now, that doesn't mean that our leaders should ignore those issues, but it certainly is complicated and snarled some of the debates around renewed drilling and, and pipeline development. You're both authors on the ISLC position statement on air pollution and lung cancer. This was recently released. Joan, what does this statement say? First of all, I can't tell you how thrilled we all are that ISLAC has taken a position on air pollution and lung cancer. I mean, after all, ISLAC is the world's largest professional organization dedicated to the prevention and treatment of lung cancer. And so the fact that ISLAC supports and advocacy and advocates for clean air is terrific. The position statement, it urges all healthcare organizations and legislative bodies to restrict air emission targets to the lowest level. It advocates for reducing fossil fuel emissions. It advocates for clean, sustainable energy. It supports further research into the carcinogenic effects of PM 2.5 and air pollution. It also urges all healthcare organizations to lower their carbon footprint, as we've talked about at both national and international meetings. So again, the fact that ISLAC is taking a public statement on this, I think is going to be very helpful. Yes, yeah, very glad to see that. All right, we're, we're coming up on time. Eric, we've talked a lot about very concerning and frightening things. And so as we close, I'm going to ask you a favor. Can you give us some words of optimism as we look ahead? Sure. I, th I think a couple things. First of all, the topic is finally being covered. And I think the outright denialism that really impeded stuff being done earlier is, is no longer an issue or is, is acceptable. That doesn't mean that, you know, there are no issues, but, but certainly that's very different. I think that at the end of the day, we have a lot of the solutions in our hand. We just need to utilize them. The worst case scenarios in terms of predictions of global warming seem to, at least right now, would not be on track for. We still have a window where major changes over the next five to 10 years will really reap significant benefits. I think the activism of younger folks is incredibly inspiring. And so, old fogies like me can, can also join with them. And, and I think that, that there really is a lot of positive energy working towards this. I think that companies and corporations and hopefully eventually hospitals get that this is no longer an issue that can be swept under the rug. So 
I get it. No one likes seeing reports of a glacier, you know, melting or slipping into the sea in Antarctica. But I really think that we're hopefully poised to really see some significant movement in the right direction. And there's a lot of reason to be optimistic and not filled with despair. And after all, we've done this in the past. America has made big societal changes as a country to all of society in the past. You know, everything from indoor plumbing to the interstate highway system to the electrification of America, those were all systematic changes. So we can do it, I think. The other optimistic point I would also like to point out is that the cost of renewable energy has really plummeted over the past decade. So wind and solar are now cheaper than coal, for example. Also, more and more businesses, banks, and investment firms are realizing that the future is going to be in uh, cleaner energy. So we're seeing that they're starting to divest from fossil fuels. Exxon had two board positions taken over by the environmental community because of the passion there. So yeah, I do. Th- I agree with Eric. I think there is cause for optimism. Thank you both for that. It's been a great discussion. I know that we're, we're at time. I want to thank both of you for the work you're doing in the field, for raising awareness, for leading the charge. And I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk to us today. But in the last few minutes of this episode, both of you are so prominent in our lung cancer world. I'd love to just shift gears for a moment and let our listeners learn a little more about the two of you. Eric, can you maybe just give us a few words about your training and and why did you choose to focus on lung cancer in your career? You know, like probably a lot of folks, a number of reasons. I had a lot of meaningful interactions with patients and their families when I was in training. I had really outstanding mentors in Wang Ki Hong and Pablo Khoury. So, you know, when you're working with really amazing physician scientists like that, it's it's hard not to be inspired. And and I think that there's just a lot in this field. I think that we've seen such a moving of the needle over the past 20 years. It's been quite gratifying. And hopefully as part of my day job, we can help move that needle even further as we go forward. Absolutely. Joan, you've played such a pivotal role in the field, and you did so at a time where there were not a lot of female representation in oncology. Can you talk about what that was like and how things have you know, hopefully changed? You're absolutely right, Stephen. When I first got into the lung cancer field, there were almost no other women involved. It was pretty much me and Frances Shepard. The original lung cancer advocacy group that we started was originally called Women Against Lung Cancer because of just to highlight the fact that not only were women highly patients for lung cancer, but that there were so few women physicians and scientists involved. I am so proud and so glad to see how this has changed. We now have a cohort of knowledgeable, strong women leading the way at their institutions or national organizations, international meetings, professional societies. You know, in fact, both the ISLAC president Heather Wakely and Chief Scientific Officer Karen Kelly are women. So that's really very nice to see. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I want to thank you both again for your time today and otherwise. Joan, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having us, Stephen. Eric, wonderful insights. Always a pleasure. That was great. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. 
You can join the conversation on Twitter at IASLC or on our website, IASLC.org. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.IASLC.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 